and welcome to the latest episode of Plain Talking, a new monthly podcast from the Plain Truth magazine. And thank you to all of you who've emailed words of encouragement and support after the first episode. It means a great deal. This month's edition shines a spotlight on the human rights of two very large groups of people. We'll be learning more of the needs of people with Down syndrome and a landmark action that is now before the High Court. We'll also look at a disturbing report from Open Doors on the plight of Christians and Muslims in India, many of whom are being denied the most basic human freedoms afforded under international law. And we'll also touch base once again with Brother David Jardine. Down syndrome is in the news at the moment. Two women are taking the UK government to court for breaching the European Convention on Human Rights and discriminating against people with Down syndrome. Current law in England, Wales and Scotland permits abortions up to 24 weeks. Whether baby is likely to be born with serious physical or mental disabilities, then termination is allowed right up to the full term of the pregnancy. Heidi Crowther, who has Down syndrome, and Moya Lee Wilson, the mother of a child with Down syndrome, believe that the government is discriminating against the Down syndrome community and not affording them the same rights and protections given to others. So I'm joined now by Lynn Murray, spokesperson for Don't Screen Us Out, an organisation that campaigns on behalf of people with Down syndrome. And I began by asking Lynn about her organisation's aims. Well, we would like to change, I guess, the culture around Down syndrome. Ultimately, that's the kind of overall picture. Um, We would like to change the culture within the NHS around screening and the birth of babies with Down syndrome. So it's basically, as I say, trying to, I suppose, get more people to know about Down syndrome and... um, and have the right reforms uh, happen within the NHS and within the government to ensure that people with a disability such as Down syndrome are are welcome into this world and are treated equally. Mm. And I guess you're particularly, I guess the clue is in the title of the the charity, uh, the word screen, because um, as I understand it, over the last few years, some new tests are coming into... um, kind of prenatal screening uh, one of which is the one of the unintended consequences i guess is is that people uh people will be informed that they may have a down syndrome child down syndrome child uh a lot earlier than in previous generations and then certain choices given is that is that something you're really concerned about yes it is but i think in some respects although the timing for us was around the latest new test it could have been any new test because the headlines always appear to be the same it's a you know a more efficient earlier test this is what you'll be told every time there's a new test that comes out uh, the benefit for people with down syndrome is absolutely nil um and women don't seem to be benefiting either in terms of the support that they're getting so it's kind of like this you know we're very big on biotechnology and we've got this new test which is you know the first sort of genomic screening are we going to really be screening out people before they're born? You know, people won't be good enough to be born because we start with Down syndrome in the case of this test, which is mm. the non-invasive prenatal test, which is a new 
um, concept to us. Uh, and if you're looking for a place where that would be most acceptable at the moment in terms of pre uh, pre birth, then Down syndrome is the place to go because people still have a fear around the likes of Down syndrome because they don't know what it is. So it's quite it's been quite acceptable for it to be, you know, um, dug in there. Uh, although we came along and sort of, you know, started to ask the ethical questions around that. Mm. And, you know, this is, um, we, we could easily treat this uh, on a kind of uh, medical scientific um, kind of line. But I guess from your point of view, um, the concern is is much more um, around people's rights and around um, the dignity of the person and what, what all this does uh, to people with Down syndrome and their families. Yeah, that, that's very true. And I think who wants to be viewed through a medical lens I don't think any group of people would want to be you know even people that don't have congenital conditions uh, can become you know people with medical conditions and I think we need to not be viewing the quality of our life through that sort of medical lens because that doesn't represent what that person's life is so Mm. yeah it's very much that's how Down syndrome has been perceived Um, that seems to be the way it is from an NHS perspective, you know, when you read the the resources that they publish, it's telling you all the things that a person with Down syndrome could get. Obviously, no one gets all of these things, but that is quite a frightening list to, to sort of have a look at when you when you're expecting a baby. So you're you're sort of looking for all these things. It doesn't tend to tell you your baby might have a heart condition, but you know, 90 odd percent of babies that need to have surgery, have successful procedures carried out and, you know, they go on to live long, happy lives as a result. Um, so, yeah, it's very much about, yeah, we're more than than this uh, medical, you know, a thing on a leaflet. And that's, mm. that's what's not being presented to women. It's time we <laughs> just looked at that um, and, and sort of tried to, to change the way that they, they carry out their screening. Which brings us, I guess, to the right up to date with this um, court action, which is now in front of the High Court in London. Um, I guess particularly the name of Heidi Crowther is the one associated with this because she's a, a she's well known, she's an actress, uh, very articulate, and someone with Down syndrome. Um, and it's she's taking, as I understand it, she's taking the UK government to court on the basis that proposed legislation that would enable uh, mothers to uh, terminate their pregnancy uh, more or less at full term if if Down syndrome um, is discovered. Um, that she's, as I understand it, again, she's taking this action on the basis that this is discriminatory. Why? Why? You know, from a very personal point of view, my my life, my existence as a someone with Down syndrome as is of less importance, less value than other people. Um, and so, this, as I understand it, this this court action is now in front. This this court this hearing is now coming to the High Court. That's that's my very um, unsatisfactory summary, Lynn. I wonder if you could tell us uh, a bit more about this this court action and what you really hope will result from it. Okay. Um, well, the point is actually this is not proposed legislation and what I discovered last week when this went to court and there was lots of calls from the media that lots of people didn't realise that the abortion law as it stands 
discriminates against babies with Down syndrome and other disabilities because it allows their abortion right up to birth, whilst babies after 24 weeks are afforded some protection in law. So that's the law as it stands. That's the sort of thing that Heidi thinks is discriminatory. And I think it's quite hard to disagree with her on that because... Mm -hmm. Yeah. That seems to be what it is, and, and, and it doesn't comply with the quality laws that we now um, have in this in this country, and, and and you know more globally. So yeah, so she she is asking for that section of abortion law to be removed because it's discriminatory. And from what you know, uh, Lynn, what what is um, in the wimp? Heidi and others have brought this uh, action. What are what what's what's the big hope? What's the the hope is that the law could be changed. That you could actually just quite easily remove that section from the law. It doesn't really affect anything else, um, but it stops that discrimination. And you know, we have parents that you know. I remember one woman woman who went along to have her baby delivered. Uh, and they actually said to her on the day, you know, it's not too late to have an abortion. And I think, how many women does that have to happen to before that's considered mm. not on, you know? And that's because that's in people's head. It's like you can have an abortion right up to birth. Mm. And, and, and and that seems to overshadow everything else. And I think that affects also, you know, links to the screening thing. And I think we need to break that sort of chain there between screening and abortion, which is very much instead of thinking, well, a screening result is to give you information rather than a screening result is for us to offer you an abortion and to keep offering you an abortion. Because we again, we have lots of stories from women. And I'm talking about right up until now. This is not in the past. Women right up to date, you know, being offered abortions once they've had a positive result for Down syndrome. Mm. So it's not surprising that the rates of termination are high um, because, you know, as Moya has said in the press, you know, I, you know, I thought it was something that must be so bad when they were offering me an abortion because she was mm. 34 weeks before she found out through a sort of procedure that was carried out that the baby had Down syndrome. And she, mm. she's like, it must be bad if they're offering me a termination at 34 weeks because that's how you sort of come into it, especially Moya, to be fair, her, hadn't chosen to have screening, but because of, of something that happened with the baby, she then, you know, they, they gave her that news. So she hadn't prepared for that at all. And so she's sort of thinking, well, this must be terrible. You know, why are they doing that? And and that's what that's what's brought her to this case um, because that was her experience. And, and you know, she realises that other women have had difficult experiences too. And the Moya you referred to there, Lynn, of course, is the uh, the other person associated with this. It's Moya Wilson, I think. Is that right? Moya Lee Wilson. Moya Lee Wilson, along with Heidi Crowther, have, uh, have brought this action. What's your vision, I guess, the big picture vision for what, what you know, for a, a world where people with Down syndrome can, can happily live and function and thrive um, along with everybody else? What, 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 you know, tell us a little bit the, the, the world you imagine. Yeah, well, I think I would like to see a world where there was more research that actually helped people with Down syndrome. Uh, a very little amount of money is spent on research that would help people's lives improve uh, whilst a lot of money is spent on screening. So, you know, I think the government, if they want to make it look like they're not trying to screen people out, should spend at least equal amounts of money on both 
uh, matters. I would like to see people being welcomed into schools. Again, we have a big problem with that in terms of obviously perceptions around your child won't fit in there. When my daughter um, was due to go to high school and we decided we were going to try the local high school that the other kids went to, you know, we were met with that sort of, you know, I don't think she would enjoy it here. And for us, it was quite shocking because our other children went and nobody questioned them. Um, and here you were being questioned. And, and as I say, <coughs> people meant well in some respects. There, there was a fear there around, you know, how would someone like that, you know, enjoy being here? Um, <coughs> because it was something they didn't know. Uh, and we just persisted and she did go to high school and... Mm. You know, at the end of that, the experience, I think a lot of people is we probably got more out of that than she did. Um, she had a great experience at school, but it really, you know, it was great for a lot of other people as well. Mm. There was one teacher who was sat crying when she left. Really? <laughs> um, wow. Because she would, school wouldn't be the same when she'd gone, you know. So we've got a lot of issues around in our community around acceptance and inclusion. And we very much feel there's mainstream and then there's Down syndrome at times. And I, I, I hate the word mainstream and I think it should be gone. Um, I think we have a school system that's apparently free to all and yet our children can't choose which school to go to. You know, they're very much told, oh, they don't fit the school, the school doesn't fit them, we can't meet their needs. Oh, there's going to be a gap. You know, none of these are insurmountable. And that's that's when I would think we'll see you know, real change when people can accept people into the mainstream and try to accommodate them. I was also able to chat with a good friend, Sue Davis, who, along with her husband, Nick, are parents to Michael, who has Down syndrome. I asked Sue about their experience of discrimination and if it was widespread. Amongst my friends and family and the general public, no. Um... I think today, people, in in my own experience, I can't speak for everybody, um, are treated with respect. And um, the, the hardest thing, I, I, if I'm honest, is actually dealing with the professional people. You know, every, you want your child to have the same opportunities as other children. You know, the right to go to a school of their choice, the, the right to be able to go and join an activity. Now, they may need a bit of extra help to do that, and that's the fight every parent has all the time. You come up against blocks. No, because they have Down syndrome, um, we had with my son, he, we wanted him to go to mainstream school. So he started off in mainstream school. He was only allowed to have 11 hours support a week. Eventually, the head teacher said to us, well, the rest of the time when he's not having those 11 hours, we are just babysitting him. Mm. And so we had no choice, really, but to send him to a special school. The special school was fine, but it wasn't his choice it wasn't our choice we he was not given a choice because mm. the support was not there for him mm. when he um at 19 when he wanted to go away to college just like every other young person wants to go away to college 
um, we had to fight. We had to get, go to local councillors. We had a very stressful time in order for him to be able to go to residential college. And it's the, all the time parents are having to fight against discrimination from, it, it seems to me, like councils. The, the money, the people who hold the money, the people who hold the purse strings, because they all say no. I actually had a, um, somebody say to us, well, what's the point in him going to college? Mm. You know, mm. and you think, well, Terrible. what's the point in anybody going to college? Yes. You know, yes. I mean, the point for him was he wanted to be like everybody else. Yes. And he wanted a social life yeah. and he had a beautiful social life there. Yeah. And, um, you know, he may not be prime minister. <laughs> Thankfully, <laughs> but uh, he he enjoys his life and he, he has a, a wonderful life. He just needs a bit of extra support, mm. and you know we yeah it, it's a mystery to me as to why we don't support our well everybody more you mm. know old people everybody. Mm. And, before I had my son with Down syndrome, I knew nothing. I knew nothing that this battle was going on because it, it, nobody knows. It's a shock. When I tell people, they can't believe, you know, gosh. I said, yeah, it's really hard. Having the child is wonderful. Mm. Having a child with Down syndrome is a special gift. Mm. They are just like any other kids. They have their ups and downs. They're not always happy. They have their spats. It's entertaining. It's it's having a child. It's a wonderful experience. The hard thing is fighting all their battles for them to have just what everybody else has. Mm. You know, nobody's asking for his housing, for example. I, I want him now to go into supported living. Oh, my goodness, it's like having to climb Mount Everest. You know, you'd think we were asking that he could go and live in Buckingham Palace. <laughs> <laughs> but he just wants to live in a house with with a friend, as any normal young person would, mm. um, you know, so that he has some independence with the right support. Mm. But we're going to, oh, no, there's nothing. There's a shortage. There's no money. Mm. No more are being built. And that's, you just, yeah, it's very, very stressful. That's the hard thing. Mm. Um, so that's the discrimination. To me, the discrimination does not come from um, uh, friends and family. And even, you know, he, he does work experience. He, that doesn't come from there because everybody gains. The d discrimination seems to come from the money holders. Mm. Um and I, and I don't know when that or if that will ever change. Only people like Heidi making mm. people realise, hang on a minute, you know, we are people the same as everybody else mm. and we deserve fairness. Open Doors has just issued a disturbing report on the persecution suffered by Christians and Muslims in India. It's called Destructive Lies highlighting disinformation, speech that incites violence and discrimination against religious minorities in India. This research, commissioned by Open Doors and conducted by researchers at the London School of Economics and Political Science, is detailed and troubling. 
It talks about the role of the Hindutva movement in creating an atmosphere of hate and discrimination against religious minorities. I asked Gloria Lecceza from Open Doors to talk more about the Hindutva movement. Uh, well, Hindutva is uh, an ideology propagated by uh, a number of far-right organizations in India. One of them is the RSS, uh, which might be the well-known uh, organization um, propagating this ideology, which really advocates for the establishment of a Hindu nation where religious minorities such as Muslims, Christians and others would not have a place. Uh, so they would either have to choose to convert to Hinduism uh, or reconvert to Hinduism or uh, be expelled from the nation or become second class citizens. Uh, so this ideology has been around for a number of years, uh, but it has really gained a lot of momentum in recent years, especially since 2014. And it has really been successful in promoting the idea that Christians and Muslims should be considered as foreigners, if not enemies of the Indian nation, because they belong to a foreign religion and uh, they don't belong to an Indic faith. Uh, so this narrative has really created an environment where discrimination, violent, and other human rights violations against these religious minorities are perpetrated with impunity, if not encouraged. Um, and Hindu extremists are using social media incre increasingly to propagate their extremist ideas. So um, they use posts to incite violence and discrimination. And sometimes they even post videos recording acts of violence against Christians and Muslims and others. Uh, and all of this with total impunity uh, and acts of violence are not punished by the police, but instead it's the victims, so the Christians and the Muslims attacks who are usually arrested under false accusations and, and treated as criminals. The report contains a number of case studies which illustrate the brutality experienced by Christians and Muslims. And I asked Gloria to share some of these. Yes, of course. Uh, yes, we uh, in our report, we analyzed in depth uh, eight case studies, six of them focusing on Christians and two of them focusing on Muslims. And we really wanted to dig deep uh, and uh, in, into all of the details of the situation, uh, not just what happened to uh, the Christians who've been and the Muslims who've been attacked, but also what was the response of the authorities and uh, what has been done to address uh, to address uh, these these incidents. So uh, just just to talk about a couple of them. Uh, our first case study uh, is from the state of Karnataka, and uh, it really details the case of a pastor, his family and congregation. And it, it was, um, the incident happened in January, 2021. And uh, it, it was during a prayer meeting organized at the pastor's resident, residence. Um, the pastor had been conducting these prayer meetings for about 30 years. Uh, but in January 2021, uh, a group of about 30 men barged into the prayer meeting and dispersed the congregants. They locked the pastor, his wife and three children into the house. 
they snatched the pastor's phone and they started, the perpetrators, the attackers, started documenting the violence they inflicted to the family with their own phones. Uh, what they did is that yeah, the attackers beat the pastor mercilessly. And when his 13-year-old daughter tried to intervene to defend him, they kicked her in the stomach and knocked her to the ground. Now, after this incident, which was highly traumatic because some men just broke into someone's house and started beating the, 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 head, the head of the family and the head of the congregation, the family went to the police to report the incident. And this is, for me, the most shocking part of all. Uh, the police actually accused the pastor of converting people to Christianity. And they did not even want to um, register a complaint. Uh, and at the police station, there were representatives of the RSS, which is a uh, Hindutva organization. And there were other organizations as well. They came to the police and they actually admitted that some of the men attacked the pastor's house. Uh, despite this, the police uh, did not want to register the complaint and was trying to intimidate the pastor not to do it. Uh, and this, unfortunately, wasn't the first time that the pastor and his family were attacked. And that's just one of our case studies. And um, another one uh, from Madhya Pradesh, this one details the struggles, uh, the struggle of a uh, Christian Adivasi woman. Uh, so she's a Christian indigenous woman uh, who will name Sunita. Uh, we, we can't disclose her real name, unfortunately, because of security reasons. And uh, she was uh, eight months pregnant in December 2020 when a mob of Hindutva men broke into the house where she was just preparing a New Year's celebration with her, with her relatives. Uh, what this group of men did, they kicked her in the stomach and caused her to give birth to a stillborn baby, uh, which is an absolutely horrible act of violence and, and highly traumatize, traumatizing for, for her, her husband, her whole family. And the mob, when they barged into the house, they started beating everyone uh, who was there. Um, and the reason for attacking them was accusations of conversion activities. But what these Christians were doing in that house, they weren't even praying together. They were just preparing a celebration for New Year's Eve. Uh, the men also sexually harassed the women who were there and they assaulted everyone who was present. Um, now, again, the victims here, the Christians, tried to report the case. They went to the police station and the police and other locals would just deny that anything as such had happened. Uh, and the police would only say that they received a complaint saying that conversion, conversion activities were taking place in that house. Now, uh, one of Sunita's relatives who was also in the house and was attacked, she actually recognized several uh, of these RSS men who were perpetrating the violence and she named them to the police. Um, and unfortunately, she couldn't even tell if the police was writing something, the police officer, but she couldn't tell whether they were actually writing the names because she, unfortunately, she's unable to write or read. Uh, now, 
again, what is most shocking to me here is that uh, Sunita and her husband reported that the police, instead of investigating the perpetrators of the violence, um, have been checking the victim's bank accounts uh, to just check if there was any monetary transaction to prove that they had converted to Christianity uh, for money. So again, the attention of the authorities of the police is on whether these people converted to Christianity or were forced to convert to Christianity instead of the horrible act of violence that they were subject to. Gloria then explained, what Open Doors hopes will be the outcome of this report? Well, as Open Doors, we are really trying to, um, it, this is really a wake up call uh, for the international community, for governments to not just take notice of what is going on in India, but also take action. So the report um, has a set of policy recommendations that are not only targeting actually the international community and and suggesting policy advice on how to how to respond to this. Uh, we are, we're also targeting with some, some policy recommendations, social media corporations actually, uh, because they do have a role to play here. And uh, they, uh, they have a role, unfortunately, in not preventing um, uh, content that is inciting violence and discrimination against religious minorities, and therefore they need to step up and 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 also address the situation. Uh, one recommendation that I want to um, that I want to highlight here is that we are specifically calling the international community to uh, work with the Indian government and set up a fact-finding commission that investigates this violence, discrimination, other human rights abuses against religious minorities, uh, these vulnerable people. And if you'd like to read the full report or gain more information about Open Doors, then please visit opendoorsuk.org. Our final interview today is with brother David Jardine, a popular Plain Truth columnist. David's voice will be heard regularly on this podcast, and so we chatted about his life and work. Welcome to you, David. Thank you very much, Keith, and thank you. Glad to be with you. It's a great privilege for me now in the last couple of years to be one of the contributors, one of the writers for Plain Truth magazine. Yes. God bless you. And I know, um, we all know that your, your articles, which are very spiritual in their nature uh, and always touch on very deep things of God and humanity and what it means to be a Christian, I know they, get on, uh, they help a lot of people. Um, who read the magazine. So, David, I'm going to, you know, I've got a, a fair list here, but I mean, your brother, David Jardine, that's, uh, right. that's because particularly your connection with the Society of St. Francis, which is a religious community within yes. the Anglican community. You joined them in 1973. That's right. I believe. And prior to that, of course, you were ordained as an Anglican priest yes. within the Church of Ireland in 1967. That's right. And uh, so you've been busy over the last few few decades of your life, by the sounds of things. 
Well, I had been I had been working as a priest in the Church of Ireland for six years, but I got a very clear call from God to go and join the Society of St. Francis. It was a very unusual thing. Somebody brought up in an Ulster Protestant background, getting a call to go and join a community, which looked in a sense a very Catholic thing to do. Sure. But for me, it was a very challenging thing. You were going to live under vows of poverty, chastity and obedience. Mm-hmm. And poverty in those days was really pretty serious. You know, you didn't get an alliance or anything like that when you joined the Society of St. Francis. No. And we, we did live a very simple lifestyle. The, the, the vow of chastity is, is the vow that Roman Catholic priests live under, the vow of, cha- cha- uh, the vow of celibacy, uh, which really means that we remain unmarried in order to serve God in a way that would be much more difficult for a married man with a family. Yes. And then the vow of obedience, like all Christians, we're supposed to be obedient to God. But in the society, we're supposed to be obedient to uh, our superiors in the community. Sure. Mm. See, David, even as you say that, um, you know, chastity, uh, obedience. What was the third one? Uh, 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 poverty. Poverty. poverty was the first one. That's right. They're, uh, they're not to the modern way of thinking that those are not attractive, <laughs> attractive uh, opportunities. Uh, I wonder how. These are not things you can do in your own strength, I wouldn't imagine. No, they're not. Actually, you know, my call was to the Society of St. Francis. I didn't make a choice to remain unmarried. That was part of the package. Hmm. And, uh, you know, it, 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 it does mean that you're probably deprived of a bit of emotional and human warmth hmm. that married people would, would take for granted. Hmm. And there, there's times unquestionably whenever you miss that. But the, the big, big compensation, Gethin, is that when I joined the society, I went into uh, an organization that had built into its daily schedule three hours of prayer and worship, wow. three hours every day. Hmm. And so I may say I'm not very good at prayer. But I can't make the excuse that God didn't give me the chance to live a life of prayer. I'll not, never be able to make that excuse. So I won't. <laughs> that, that sounds like it could be quite a lonely life. I mean, how do you... Most, most people live in community. Okay. Um, for 25 years, we had a community here. You see, when we came, first of all, to Belfast, we lived on the Shankle Road. Uh, And then for 20 years after that, we lived in the Ardoyne. You know, those those were areas where there was a lot of trouble. And in between, I managed to slip in three years in Brooklyn, New York, which made Belfast look like a Sunday school. (laughs) There were were 3,000 people killed in New York every year at that time. Whereas uh, it, it took... Uh, 25 years for 3,000 people to be killed in Northern Ireland. Is that right, David? Yeah. When I finished working as Church of Ireland chaplain in Crumlin Road Prison in 1985, I'd been there for 10 years, the society decided that I needed a change of scenery. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. And they sent me to New York, to Brooklyn, to the house that the society had there. And I worked in two different churches. I worked in a huge church where all of the people originally came from the Caribbean, from the West Indies. And then because my university degree had been in Spanish, they got me a job working with the Spanish-speaking community. Yeah. And they were both they were very exciting ministries. Like I was brushing shoulders with people from every country in South America and not having been able to use my Spanish very much up until then, that was really a very exciting prospect. Wow. Extraordinary, David. So you, that's the extraordinary thing that with it, <laughs> despite that the height of the troubles, when um, one imagines there, were, there was, there was a very profound, um, you know, loss of life going on. Nevertheless, um, compared to somewhere like New York, it was, um, you know, relatively it like tame. It was like a Sunday school. <laughs> in New York, you know, boys used to say to me whenever I went there, on the streets in Brooklyn, you have to be careful all the time who's in front of you and who's behind you. Mm. And I said to myself, these fellas are swinging the lead a bit here, so they are, you know. <laughs> no, it was absolutely right. Mm. And if you hadn't been aware, you wouldn't have come back some night, so you wouldn't. Wow. Yeah. The clerical collar was really no defence. I had my pocket picked at 8 o'clock in the morning wearing a clerical collar. But oh, the yeah. brown Franciscan robes, did give you protection. There was yeah. no question about that. Maybe it was out of respect for them or the, the fact that they knew that you had no money so there was no sense attacking you. But yeah. I've always felt quite safe yeah. uh, in the Franciscan robes. They might have shouted at you, might yeah. have made fun of you, but they never did anything on me yeah. wearing the Franciscan robes. No. Well, as you're saying that, David, I'm thinking of... Uh, a marvelous film with Whoopi Goldberg, Sister Act. That's right. She uh, she goes she goes into hiding as a nun and uh, yeah. is afforded some protection. I think that's in New York as well. I think it is actually. <laughs> yes. Oh, <yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> and David, you, also are you as part of your CV, if you like, you were a chaplain, a prison chaplain, um, the Crumlin Road Prison, I guess. Yes, in- I was. I was chaplain on Crumlin Road Prison, and uh, for ten years from 1975 to. 1985. When I joined the Society of St. Francis, they used to have a ministry to prisons and borstals. And they used to send me down as part of a group from time to time down to Portland Borstal, which is right in the very south of, of, of Dorset. And you would have basically just shared the life of the, of the prisoners. You slept in a cell at night. You mixed with them in the dining hall. She played football with them on a Saturday afternoon. Um, just sat and talked to them whenever you were free to do that and took the service in the chapel on a Sunday morning. And I, I enjoyed that very much. So mm-hmm. when they sent me back to Belfast, I asked the bishop, would he get me a job working in the prison? And it took a little time to get it organized, but he got me a full-time job there. Wow. And it meant that you were mixing uh, really with all of the people, both Republican and Loyalist, who were involved in the troubles. Mm-hmm. But you were really quite safe with them. Yeah. You could befriend them, uh, you know, as a pastor, as a mm-hmm. chaplain. And you were in, in the main, I was really very safe there. But you had this personal relationship with yeah. all of these people who were involved in the troubles. Well, thanks for listening to this podcast. 
and watch out next month for your next edition. If you'd like to read more stories on some of the topics discussed today, then please visit our website where you can sign up for a free subscription of The Plain Truth. Just go to www.plain-truth.org.uk. Many thanks for listening and God bless you. Bye-bye.